Hello and welcome to another episode of The Voice for American Law Enforcement. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, retired police lieutenant with 34 years of service, the author of A Cop's Life, and the founder of The Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. Also, quick tease, a new book coming out, and uh, I'm very proud of it, going to be out in a couple of months. It's called Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. Uh, on this show, we talk about all things law enforcement, and uh, we talk with some amazing guests, and I have one waiting in the interview room right now, and I'm going to bring her in. Welcome. Hi, Hi welcome. So th this is uh, Dr. Springer, Dr. Shauna Springer. I'm going to read a little bit about her bio. It's about 18 paragraphs long, so I'm going to cut it down <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. Um, Shauna, <laughs> <Please don't. laughs> Dr. Springer is a licensed psychologist, best-selling author, Frequently requested keynote speaker, award-winning podcast host, and one of the world's leading experts on psychological trauma, military transition, suicide prevention, and close relationships. In her latest best-selling book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma, along with Sergeant Michael Segru, she tackles the complexity of trauma with the law enforcement community. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. In fact, following you, we're going to have um, Mike Segru on as well. So, Shauna, thank you so much for joining me here on The Voice for American Law Enforcement. Thank you, Randy. It's good to be here. So let's let's a quick background about you, okay. and then what caused you to write this book, Relentless Courage, with your co-author Michael Segrou. It's been really an interesting journey. Um, I became a trusted doc among our nation's warfighters many years ago, and have really focused on military veterans. And what's happened in the past couple of years, I would say, is this also addition of this new tribe of people that are wired a lot like warriors and go through a lot of the same traumas and moral injuries, um, grief, loss, survivor guilt, just so much of that work was so um, migratable, if that's a word, to um, first responders. So it's been really meaningful to me to do this work. So what got you into into the, uh, the psychology field? What was it that, that uh, was the impetus for that? Probably not going into law. <laughs> Uh, that was my kind of plan A, and uh, that's what my family did, and that was my path, my prescribed path. And it just, I didn't feel like it was a good fit for who I am and what I could offer. And so I chose the path less traveled in my family, and um, also within my graduating class at Harvard, there weren't a lot of psychologists or a psychology school even at Harvard that really taught therapy and counseling. Um, but that's what I did a lot of in, in high school and probably really informal ways, talking with people about problems and how to work through solutions. And so it was, it turned out to be a great fit for, for me. So this was a calling for you, similar to what, uh, what drives police officers to become police officers. It was, it started from long ago and it has proven itself to be a deeply meaningful purpose that orients my entire life and identity. So yes, it's been a calling. So how long have you been in the psychology field? Well, I graduated in 2006. So whatever the math is on that, almost, <laughs> uh, I guess, a couple, couple decades. Um, but I'll tell you, Randy, when I left that clinical space where I had seen hundreds of veteran patients in a VA clinic and kind of went free range, that's when I really feel like I developed who I am as a psychologist, 
just being embedded. Um, I'm actually leaving later this week to go to my annual warfighter reunion. And these are off the grid places in Texas, North Carolina. Last year it was on an open firing range. And I just spend the weekend with them and we um, catch up and they heal. And it's been an awesome experience. And I don't think I'll ever go back to standard clinical environment after the kinds of experiences I've had helping heal warriors on the ground. Understood. Understood. All right. Now let's talk about the book, Relentless Courage. Um, you wrote this book with, with a police officer. And so that's an interesting combination. Ex uh, explain the, the, uh, how the, me the metamorphosis of this book. Yeah. So thank you. So Michael Sugru is a retired police sergeant in the town in the city where I live. And a lot of his traumas, all of them, in fact, occurred within miles of, of where I live. And so, you know, we say people don't really understand what first responders go through. I think that includes me as far as Michael's story was concerned. And so learning all of these things he went through, all of these um, traumas and um, just impossible decisions he had to make and the way that his life unraveled um, when he was ultimately sued um, and then put on disability, it all was really interesting from the framework of this is a town that I know well, a city where I live, um, and a person that I am a friend of. Um, so we wrote it together and I would interview him. And then Michael had done years of report writing and he said, I won't write this. I, I hate writing, but I said, I really enjoy it. So if, if I can interview you, I will step into a role and sort of write it as though I were you. And then I will step into my own voice and write a number of insights about what you share. So it's almost like two books in one or finding out what the psychologist really thinks after you hear about the story of trauma. Yeah, it's a fascinating concept and one that's, uh, I don't think I've, I've uh, seen this before, uh, especially concerning law enforcement and a psychologist, you know, collaborating on a, on a work like this. So what did you learn from doing this book? I learned that suicide is the biggest threat that's in the blind spot of many first responders, that they are so trained to protect themselves and look for the threat outside of themselves, that sometimes the self-destructive urge can build very quickly or very quietly and can be overwhelming at a certain point when a perfect storm of stress hits in their life. And so this book was, to your point, almost like a conversation where Michael shared things with me. I learned things. I shared things with him from my professional background um, and hopefully shared a number of insights to give people um, <clears throat> a new perspective on suicide and, and how we heal from trauma and some of the innovative treatments like Stellar Ganglion Block that are now available for first responders in terms of a precision biological treatment to address some of their symptoms. You know, I'm I'm going to be doing a special show on SGB stellate ganglion block cool. at, at, in the future um, because I, I think that this is a, such a fascinating topic. But I don't want to get off the topic of the book in order to talk about that at this point. So, um, you know, there's there's a difference between post traumatic stress disorder and post traumatic yeah. stress injury, and and mm -hmm. sometimes that that line is blurred and 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 the PTSD is labeled on people. Uh, can you Great. explain the difference? Sure. So Michael Sugru and I, who wrote Relentless Courage, we agree that PTSD 
needs to become, needs to evolve into post-traumatic stress injury, where an injury is something that we can heal from. It happens to us because of our situation or our circumstance or environment. First responders have hundreds of traumas over the course of a typical career, and these cause injuries to the body. It's not just some vague, <clears throat> you know, bio, it's not some vague psychological disorder. It actually causes changes to your fight or flight system and gives you these predictable uh, struggles like disrupted sleep all the time or floods of irritability that seem to come from nowhere when you're with your family and then people will burn with shame because they've you know lost their cool with their wife or their kids or um, sudden surges of panic constantly scanning the world for where the threat is going to come at you all of these things are injuries that can be seen with the right brain scan and can be healed with the right treatments and so the shift takes the stigma out of this being some vague disorder or invisible wound and really places it in the camp of we can see it, we can treat it, we can heal it, you can get your life back. Fascinating. And, and I wanted to just briefly touch on the difference between a, um, a, a traumatic experience causing post-traumatic stress injury, one experience, and then as that relates to continued you know, over, over a long period of time, uh, the continual uh, uh, being in the presence of, of traumatic experiences. How does that affect, you know, what's the difference between the two? We think of trauma as, you know, this big event that causes us to feel helplessness or horror. And that can certainly happen, but many of the warfighters and first responders I've worked with have had this layering effect of trauma after trauma after trauma and always having to be hypervigilant. Uh, one of the reviews for the book talked about how many first responders have to protect themselves, unfortunately, from the front part of their sort of armor and from behind if their department is not supportive when they start to feel the effects of these kinds of trauma exposures. Um, so there's different departments and different cultures. And one of the things I really appreciate about your message, Randy, is that you're really getting out front with that message of wellness and post-traumatic stress injury is something that can be addressed. Um, so, did I did I answer your question? Yeah, absolutely, you did. So, um, in the in the minute that we have remaining, um, just briefly uh, tell me how this writing this book um, it affected you internally. There were chapters that I had difficulty writing because I was so angry about the way that my friend Michael Suru was treated um, in the courtroom by the opposing attorneys uh, who are now disbarred um, because of some other behavior, I suppose. But, um, but I learned a lot about trauma. I'm always learning. I don't think I've figured it all out. And this experience was a deeply meaningful one where a friend opened up to me and to all of us, showed himself such relentless courage to be so open about his challenges and struggles so that other people could learn from this and could heal and um, it would save and change lives. An amazing book. I recommend this to every law enforcement officer and their families. Um, Dr. Shauna Springer, uh, where can the book be obtained? On Amazon. We have uh, now paperback, hardback, and an ebook version, and eventually we'll tape it, but that'll take a little while. So it's on Amazon. And where can you be reached? At Doc 
shaunaspringer.com. And if you go to docshaunaspringer.com, there's a little book subpage that has some pictures that are pretty interesting from the book. Like when Michael was undercover as a, um, a drug dealer, there's a picture of that, um, as well as some other things that will kind of draw you in from, from what's in our book. Well, thank you so much, uh, Doc, for showing up here on, on The Voice for American Law Enforcement, talking about this book, and I'll have you on again when we're going to be talking about SGB. Thanks, Randy. I appreciate you. My second guest for today is the a co-author of this amazing book, Relentless Courage, and uh, why don't you bring him on in? Uh, Mike, Michael Sugru, Sugru excuse me, is a retired police sergeant. I'll read a little bit about his background. Began his law enforcement career in the United States Air Force as security forces officer in 1998. He rose to the rank of captain, retired, and then joined the Walnut Creek Police Department, where he served under a variety of assignments, including patrol, driver training, field training, detective, undercover, narcotics task force agent, PIO and Patrol Sergeant. He was awarded the Walnut Creek Distinguished Service Medal 2014 for his heroic and life-saving actions during a fatal officer-involved shooting in 2012. He is uh, medically retired. He is the co-author of the best-selling book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma, along with our previous guest, Dr. Shauna Springer. Michael, thank you so much for joining me here on The Voice for American Law Enforcement. Thanks for having me on. It's my honor. Okay, let's talk about your, real quickly, a little bit of background about your law enforcement career, and then what caused you to leave that law enforcement career? So my career actually started out in the Air Force, and I did about six and a half years active duty, stationed all over the world. And in 2004, I transitioned out into civilian law enforcement and served in a bunch of different assignments. And about eight years into my civilian career, I was promoted to patrol sergeant. And literally on my second solo shift, I was involved in a fatal shooting where a man with a butcher knife was trying to care, kill a couple barricaded in their bedroom. And that incident forever changed me. It changed my path. And literally after that night, my life started to spiral downward. And I suffered in silence for many years where I got to the point where I just didn't want to be here anymore. Well... So when, when this took place, what were the actions that happened? As far as the shooting itself or after the shooting? After the shooting. So after the shooting, that we were actually sued immediately by the family, and we endured a four-year federal lawsuit. And the first actual court proceeding was about five or six months after the shooting. And in our county, it was called the coroner's inquest. And at that incident... It was open to the public. There was a full jury. There was a judge. I had brought my wife at the time. We were starting to have really bad marital problems. A vast majority of my department was there. The family members of the person I killed was there. And I remember when I first got there, they played the dispatch tapes. And that literally brought me right back to that night. I started sweating profusely. I felt like literally I was going to pass out. Eventually, I get called on the stand, and the judge asked me to recount what happened and I'm going through it. I'm doing fine. And I get to the part where the guy with the butcher knife charges at me down the stairs and I lose it. I literally start bawling and crying in this open courtroom with 60, 70 people. And I was in, I was just embarrassed. I mean, I couldn't believe that I showed emotion in a room full of complete strangers like that. And so I ended up leaving the courtroom, got my stuff together, came back. We got through the proceedings 
And a couple weeks after that, I got called into a supervisor's office. And I thought for sure I was going to get accolades. I mean, literally, I was a brand-new sergeant involved in the shooting. We saved lives. And where I worked, we just didn't have officer-involved shootings. I think the, the last one before mine was like 12 or 14 years. And instead of getting accolades, actually what happened was the polar opposite of that. And I got questioned on my integrity of my emotions. And it was actually both said and directly inferred that I was acting or putting on a show for the jury. And that moment wow. right there is where I should have raised my hand and asked for help. I mean, my life was literally falling apart, but I was too scared and too ashamed. And instead of asking for help, I made a conscious decision that very day that I would never show emotion again, that I would prove them wrong and I would get through that. And that was actually the worst mistake I could have ever made. That's when my life truly started to spiral downward. You're, you're talking about something that is uh, really um, very personal to me as well. I had a very similar uh, experience and, and, uh, so this is really this is really touching me, and I'm sure many others who are listening and watching this show. So what happened then? Well, that's really when my marriage started going downward. I started drinking way too much. I started isolating. My nightmares weren't going away. They are getting worse and worse. And because of this lawsuit, literally, I couldn't forget a single detail of this incident where I almost died. I had to relive this incident for four years straight in depositions sitting across the table from the father of the man that I killed. I started having health issues. I started getting diagnosed with repeated skin cancer. My father, who was my hero, he was in law enforcement. He got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and died months later. My best friend, he literally tried to kill himself when I was on duty. And his actions are actually what saved my life. Because at that point, I just didn't want to be here anymore. I started putting my officer safety aside, purposely putting myself in dangerous situations, hoping I died in the line of duty. And because of my friend, I finally got the strength and courage to raise my hand and ask for help. How did that, how did that uh, experience, uh, where did it take you, ask, finally asking for help? Because first of all, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do, but then were you able to find the help that you needed? So initially, my agency was very supportive. I literally called the on-duty watch commander. He talked to me for an, over an hour. He connected me to our department therapist, told me he was going to make all the notifications, and he set the ball in motion. And thank God I was connected with a culturally competent therapist right away. And that really made the difference. I remember on our first meeting, she shared a very dark, deep personal story. And I knew at that moment, that I could trust her with my life. I knew that she actually understood it and got it. It wasn't something that she just read about in a book. And so that's where for the first time I was able to start sharing what was actually on my mind to share these feelings that I was having. And then she told me about a remarkable program called the West Coast Post Trauma Retreat. And I ended up going there about five months into my recovery. And it's a week long retreat it's staffed by all volunteers, so clinicians, therapists, chaplains, uh, people like me who have previously been through the program. And that's where I realized that I wasn't alone, that there were so many of my brothers and sisters, firefighters, paramedics, police officers, dispatchers, that were all going through the exact same things that I was. You know, even though their incidents were similar or a little bit different, 
the fact is that this years of repeated trauma was affecting us all the same way. And knowing that I wasn't alone was the key to my recovery, knowing that I had people I could go to day or night that I could call who would just listen and who would understand it and wouldn't judge me. And that was absolutely pivotal to my recovery. And so things were going well for several months. But about six months into my recovery is where things turned. And this is where admin betrayal really came into play. And instead of supporting my recovery, I was told that I should think about retiring, giving up this career that literally was my dream for my entire life. It was all I knew. And I couldn't believe it because I was putting everything into my recovery. And now I was being told that maybe I should think about doing something else with my life. What, what do you think happened uh, that, to, that caused that shift? You know, I think, honestly, it's because the admin, they hadn't been involved in any instance like I had been. I think that all they cared about was the staffing and getting people on the street. And I was asked specifically, when are you coming back? Do you have an exact date of when you're going to be back? And I told them, I said, look, I don't have a date, but I can tell you I'm doing everything I can to get better. And I'm going to continue to do that. And I think the honest truth is that they just want bodies on the street. They didn't care whether or not it was me or somebody else. They just needed to fill my position. And that's truly what they cared about. You became a number. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing is up until that point, I thought this was a true family. I didn't think I was a number. I thought I was a person who was giving my all every single day, making a true difference in our community. I mean, literally giving my all day in and day out, putting my life on the line. But that moment is where I realized, like you said, is that I was just a number. You know, unfortunately, you and many, many others have faced this issue. And how did that betrayal affect your, your treatment? Because that's what it is. It's a that betrayal. Oh, absolutely. And, and that moment, again, made me spiral downward. And literally at that point, I, I'm like, look, I can't do this on my own. I've got to get legal representation. I've got to get help. And what's so ironic about this is a couple months after that incident, when I finally decided, look, I can't do this job anymore. I actually made the decision that I'm going to medically retire. As hard as it was, I figured out that I can't go back. I waited far too long to ask for help. And it was about a week after that decision is when my agency called me up and actually informed me that I was the subject of an eye investigation for something that supposedly happened a year and a half earlier. And that literally right there put everything into jeopardy. I mean, I could have lost my retirement. I could have been prosecuted. I could have been put in jail. And I literally at that very moment thought about taking my own life. And thank God I used my resources. I pulled out my phone and I called the peer director from the West Coast Post Trauma Retreat. And he talked to me for two hours and he talked me down and made me realize that I can get through this. And eventually I did. How long was your, I, when, I mean, there's no time frame for an individual who has, who has faced trauma. But when you started feeling healthy again, how long was it? It was a couple of years. You know, I felt changes within a couple of weeks. But to get to the point where I felt like I was actually recovered from post-traumatic stress injury, it was at least two years. And it was a combination of doing many different things. And the truth is that, you know, I'm still on the road to recovery today. There's things that I have to do every single day 
to ensure that I don't relapse, that I don't fall back into my old patterns. And so, you know, this is a journey. It's not, there's no magic bullet or magic thing that's going to make it all go away. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of patience and there's setbacks, but know that there is hope on the other side of this. Can, can you describe some of the, uh, some of the avenues that you took that were, that were successful for you? Well, as I mentioned, the West Coast post-trauma retreat, in addition to that, I learned about first responder support meetings. And I'd never heard of these before. I didn't know about them, but they're confidential, literally just discussion meetings that are held off-site. They're not associated with any agencies. And it's where you just talk about what's going on. And just like WCPR, I had more brothers and sisters who I could open up to, that I could listen to, who I knew that got it and wouldn't judge me. In addition to that, Actually, about two years into my recovery, that's where I realized about complex post-traumatic stress. And what that is, is the actual effects of childhood trauma. And so I ended up attending another program called Save a Warrior. And Save a Warrior was phenomenal. Again, another week-long program. But this one is actually focused on childhood trauma, things that we as first responders, we don't want to acknowledge, we don't want to talk about. But the reality is that most of us have some form of childhood trauma growing up. I mean, it could be very minor and benign. It could have been just emotionally distant parent, you know, somebody who was not affectionate, who was working all the time, or it could be very extreme, physical abuse, sexual abuse, you know, drug addict, alcoholic. And and the ironic thing is that these early childhood experiences actually make us very good at what we do. They make us very good first responders. That's really, it's interesting. And, and um, through my work with the Wounded Blue, of course, uh, I've discovered this as well, that, that um, there's a great deal of childhood trauma that comes out inadvertently when you're being treated for post-traumatic stress injury. But let, let's shift over a little bit because I want to talk about your book. Um, you know, you, uh, you and uh, Doc Springer worked, collaborated together uh, to create a book that, that could touch the lives of literally thousands of law enforcement first responders around the country. How did, how did this happen? How did this take place? It's kind of an interesting story, but literally a couple years ago, Doc Springer reached out to me on LinkedIn. I'm on there a lot. I post a lot of things on post-traumatic stress. She didn't know me. I didn't know her. And she just sent a message saying, Hey, I'd like to talk to you at some point. And so we set up a phone call. And we were talking about the work that we're both doing. And she started talking about Stellate Ganglion Block and her work with combat veterans. And during that discussion, she actually asked me, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, you know, it's funny that you actually asked that because I've been asked that before. And I have thought about it, but the truth is that I'm just burnt out. I don't think I have the bandwidth, you know, or the stamina to actually get through a project like this. And so we just left the conversation at that. And a couple months later, she actually reached back out to me and she said, look, she said, Michael, your story has really resonated with me. And I think your story is going to help save a lot of lives. And she said, I want to make this happen for you. She's like, I want to work together and make this a reality. And so Doc Springer made this a reality. And I thank her for it because this book is literally saving lives. What a journey. What an incredible journey. Um, When, when you, we're doing this book. Did you relive some of the traumatic uh, experiences uh, or was it cathartic for you? 
No, this took a toll. This process absolutely took a toll. When we started this, on top of that, it was at the height of the COVID pandemic. And we actually didn't even get to meet in person for a year and a half. Oh, wow. So we did this all via, yeah, we did it all via Zoom meetings. So literally like every week, two hours long. And again, I had to relive everything in finite detail all the way back to childhood till now. And it absolutely took a toll. But thank God, you know, I did this with Doc Springer because the beautiful thing was that every time before we started and every time we finished, we checked in and we had a discussion and, and Doc made sure that I was in a good place before she hung up that phone. And so even though it took a toll, I knew that I could pick up that phone and call Doc Springer anytime, day or night, and I could talk about what was on my mind. And that, that made a true difference. Wow. It's fascinating. And what a, what a great work that you guys did. I mean, I hope that uh, that all law enforcement officers and first responders pick up this book, Relentless Courage. They can find it on Amazon. I know that. Now, let me ask you th this final question. How is your life now? My life is remarkable. I mean, I, I look back now when I was working, you know, 13, 14 hours a day, I wasn't an involved father. I wasn't a good partner. I mean, literally all I cared about was my career. And now I can enjoy life every single day. I have a beautiful daughter that I have half the time. You know, I pick her up every day from school. I go on field trips. We work out together. We go hiking. I mean, I enjoy every second I get. And I have a whole new perspective. I mean, it's something I never envisioned. And I found my true purpose. My true purpose is now to share my story and help save all those that are suffering in silence. And I'm truly blessed, absolutely blessed to have this life. That's, that's very, very inspiring. Uh, Michael Segrew, co-author of Relentless Courage, uh, available on Amazon. Michael, thank you so much for joining me here at The Voice for American Law Enforcement. And you and I will talk soon. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Amazing interviews with uh, Dr. Shauna Springer and Michael Segrew, retired police sergeant, talking about one of the most uh, important topics in law enforcement, that's post-traumatic stress injury. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. 
The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. So let's get into the news. And, you know, uh, one of the things that I found so fascinating about the discussion, especially with Michael, was how the administrative aspects uh, in, in in relation to his shooting and his attempt to get help, how that exacerbated his issues. Because this is something that we see across the nation. We see um, what officers on the street feel is a betrayal, a betrayal by their own uh, administrations, their cities, and uh, also the, the, the political environment that surrounds them. So let's talk about, about some of this right now. Um, Minneapolis, as we know, was the epicenter of the firestorm of the anti-law enforcement movement beginning. Well, it began previously, but really became um, a tsunami after the death of George Floyd, which occurred in Minneapolis. So that became the epicenter, and that's where the riots began. Uh, the anti-police movement really, really took, uh, took on a new life. The defunding movement, the dismantling of the police movement was exceedingly strong in Minneapolis. Now, what was the result of that? Um, the wholesale retirements and resignations of police officers uh, from the Minneapolis Police Department. The crime rate there, of course, has risen dramatically in, uh, in, in response to that because if there's nobody left to protect the, the people, the, uh, uh, the denizens of the night will come out and they will victimize and victimize and victimize. And, and some of the reaction I saw from, from the people in Minneapolis at the outset was, yeah, let's, uh, let's support Black Lives Matter. Let's support the anti-police movement. Let's support defunding. Let's dismantle the police department. Until the realities set in and the, the uh, public safety was so affected and so jeopardized. So then some of the citizens, because we had the, the mayor, Jacob Fry, was leading the charge against the Minneapolis police. The city council was, was they were marching in unison to basically dismantle the police department, reimagine, which I love that word, reimagine, in this weird utopian theory that they had. And meanwhile, the, the, the number of police officers who were patrolling the streets diminished and diminished and diminished. They're now, they're now like 300 people down from where they need to be. That's like a third of the department. It's insane. So then, this is very interesting. Some of the citizens banded together and said, this is nuts. And they went ahead with a lawsuit against the city of Minneapolis saying, it is your duty to fix this. It is your duty to bring the number of police officers that are, that are necessary to protect our city. You have to do it, Mayor. You have to do it, City Council. And so they actually filed a suit, and they won. 
and they won. They were the city was ordered to hire more cops. Of course, the the left lost their minds, but the the reality is that without police, you have anarchy. And the court ruled, it is your duty, Mayor. It is your duty. Minneapolis City Council to protect your people. And the only way to do it is to hire a number of the number of cops who are required. Well, they haven't done it. They're making up all kinds of excuses. They this has now gone through an appeal. Uh, and just days ago, the state Supreme Court upheld the decision that said, you, City of Minneapolis, you, Mayor Fry, are delinquent in your actions. Hire more cops. So now what's happening? First of all, they begged retired cops to come back. They did, we'll bring you back, we'll pay you more money, we'll give you bonuses, we'll do this, we'll do that. And uh, uh, very logically, the officers there said, mm -mm, not happening. So now, what is in in the in the weird way that the world works? Now Minneapolis has to offer more money to the police. The same people that they that they literally ran out, that they disrespected, that they dishonored, that they they literally um, uh, committed acts of betrayal against those officers. So now they're in panic mode. What are we going to do? So. This is this is this headline came out just days ago. Minneapolis Minneapolis officials, oh, Minneapolis may raise salary of chief to attract new police leader. Minneapolis officials are considering raising the police chief's salary as they search for someone to lead the department that has struggled to keep personnel since the in custody George Floyd death and the subsequent riots. Under the proposal, the city's next police chief would earn between $253,000 and $300,000, up significantly from the roughly $204,000 former chief Madaria Arredondo was listed as receiving last year. Mayor Jacob Fry, now remember, this is the guy who wanted to get rid of the police department, said he believes the raise will be crucial for attracting high-caliber candidates at a time when many cities across the country are searching for police leaders. Now, this is, this is, the, this is the, uh, the, the kicker to this. Some council members, though, questioned whether that money could be better ser served, spent on other public safety services or efforts to improve accountability for the police. That's the, that is the catchphrase for all of this insanity. Accountability. The police need to be accountable. Now, the mayor doesn't have to be accountable, and the city council doesn't have to be accountable, but we have to make the police accountable. Of course, the police are accountable on more levels than any, any group of people on the face of the planet. They face all kinds of investigative uh, units. They have the attorney general. They have, the, they have amazing incredible uh, reality checks here when it comes down to their accountability. But you won't hear that. You, won't, you will not hear that. Um, instead, the, uh, you have these, uh, these city leaders are still clinging to their utopian weirdness as they, as they uh, continue their anti-law enforcement rant. 
So that's happening in Minneapolis. It's not the only place where we're having issues of uh, law enforcement feeling betrayed by their organizations. Let's look at um, let's look at the National Police Association, who is who is leading the charge uh, in a big way against this incredible anti. Excuse me, I gotta gotta wet my whistle a little bit with my. If you want one of these cups, by the way, uh, thewoundedblue.org. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the shirt. Little commercial value there. The National Police Association sues CBP, the uh, Customs and Border Protection, over agents accused of quote whipping migrants unquote. National Police Association announced Thursday it has filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and Customs Border Protection for Communications and Records pertaining to the allegations by the Biden administration against against mounted border patrol agents in the, quote, whipping, unquote, incident. Now, you'll remember that there was a a photograph that showed up, a little video uh, taken from a photojournalist where... um, horse-mounted Border Patrol was trying to push back a group of illegal migrants. And in that, you saw one of the Border Patrol agents using their reins as a, as a method of controlling their horse. Well, somebody claimed that 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 they were what they were really doing was whipping migrants. They were whipping like the slaves. Even the even the photojournalist came out immediately and said that's not what was happening. But the Biden administration, in fact, the president himself, came on national news and and excoriated the border patrol officers and said they were going to be punished. Now the president didn't even know what the hell was going on. Well. Maybe that's the norm. But in this particular case, he had no idea. He saw a photograph. He listened to some of the, the leftist maniacs who, who, who care nothing about, uh, about justice or about the law or about uh, public safety. They, it's like it's, it's, it, was, it was incredible to see that the president of the United States came on the air and, and just accused these officers who did nothing wrong except try to do their jobs and and he screams out for punishment. Well, now it's been years, years. Now an internal affairs investigation can take some period of time, but when you now they took these agents and they took them off the off their 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 uh, field assignments. They stuck them in some place where they were going to be out of sight, out of mind, as a punishment before the investigation was completed. And it's still not completed. This is years later. However, the there was a, just a headline that now the uh, there are not going to be any criminal charges, but there's going to be administrative charges. So the Biden administration is now trying to cover its ass because they came out publicly and and they made accusations against these officers, which in any any other, if this were anybody else, they would be able to sue for damages, but not not the police, not not law enforcement. 
They have to sit there and take it while everybody screams for accountability. Screams for accountability against the police. So we're going to see what the administration does. But what the National Police Association is doing is they filed a lawsuit because they want the records. And, of course, the lawless Biden administration, which is what it is, is not complying with the law, once again, in providing those FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests. They have to. It's the law. But once again, <clears throat> the lawless Biden administration, who cares nothing about the safety of the people of this country, are failing to do what is their legal responsibilities. So before I get into the next story, I want to talk about, about uh, uh, a topic that doesn't get much airtime, but really can affect the safety of, of American law enforcement officers, and that's their privacy. You know, um, I, was, uh, I was given a demonstration, which was very eye-opening for me, from uh, the creator of OfficerPrivacy.com, who is a former police officer. And what they do is amazing. Uh, he showed me how easily I was found my personal information on the internet, my my home address, the car that I drive, and it was it was just out there for everybody. So what Officer Privacy has done is they created the ability to remove much of that personal information to safeguard the officers and their privacy. And I got to tell you, uh, I am a major proponent of this. It's not that expensive. In fact, it's not expensive at all. It is preventative for being doxxed, which we know is a favorite tool of Antifa and the left. And it provides a measure of protection uh, for these officers. If you're a law enforcement officer, or if you've been a law enforcement officer, I, I really ask you to go to officerprivacy.com. And, and uh, talk to Pete over there, who's the founder. Um, they've helped thousands of law enforcement officers across the nation very effectively um, uh, handle some of their privacy needs. So please, go to officerprivacy.com. Tell them Randy sent you. Uh, I have a great relationship with them, and uh, it's something that I, I sincerely urge you to do, officerprivacy.com. Um, so the... Uh, you know, we're talking earlier about about uh, the uh, effects of feeling like your uh, your your department, your system has betrayed you when you're a police officer doing their duty. Um, there's a story out of Grand Rapids that has really angered me. Um, there was a, an incident a few months ago where a Grand Rapids police officer, this received a lot of media attention. Grand Rapids police officer makes a car stop. White officer, black suspect, black passenger, uh, and the and the, clearly the, this is going to go south because the driver, uh, just like in, in like every major use of force, becomes non-compliant with the officer. You can see that all, all the officer is asking is for his driver's license, registration, proof of insurance. The guy is, is dancing around. He gets out of the car when the officer tells him not to. And you know, especially when you're a police officer and you see this, you know that this is about to go south. And it did. And then the, uh, the, the, the suspect, um, his name, uh, 
Patrick Leoya, uh, then began to try and escape from the officer. And there began a knockdown, drag-out fight for almost two minutes. Now, why is that number significant? Because if you are in an absolute fight for your life, which this turned out to be, because the suspect grabbed the officer's taser, and they were fighting over the taser as the officer is trying to take him into custody. And he's telling him time after time, stop resisting, drop the taser. Meanwhile, he's getting exhausted from, from this fight. Eventually, they go, they go down to the ground. And the suspect still has the taser. And the officer is trying to control it and realizes he's losing it. He's going to lose, and if he loses that, he could lose his life. And so during this, this, this incredible fight, the officer, at the point of exhaustion, takes out his service weapon and shoots and kills the suspect. Well, here's the, here's the headline. Grand Rapids police officer Christopher Schur fired for shooting Patrick Leola and arrested Grand Rapids police officer Christopher Schur was fired by his department on Wednesday, less than one week after he was charged with second-degree murder in connection with the fatal officer-involved shooting. Loyola, age 26, was fatally shot while trying to disarm Officer Schur during a fight that broke out on a traffic stop. Loyola had a blood alcohol level of 0.29% at the time of the shooting, almost four times the legal limit. Kent County Prosecutor Chris Becker announced during a press conference uh, that he had charged Officer Schur with second-degree murder. Officer Schur faces a maximum of life in prison. All right. Police officers across the nation are watching this because they've seen the improper prosecutions, persecution by prosecution is what I call this, of police officers across the country since the debacle of, of uh, George Floyd. <clears throat> it is, what this is demonstrating to cops all over the country is that you, even if your life is in danger, we don't care. Even if you're trying to save your life, we don't care. If you try and save your life by, by having to use deadly force, we're going to arrest you. We're going to charge you. We're going to destroy your life. We're going to fire you. This is, this is betrayal at every level. And I, I just, it makes me sick to see this. That once again, another prosecutor has, has abandoned his oath of office for political purposes, and charged another police officer who was simply trying to save his own life. I'll be watching this, and I'll be continuing to report on it, but this is sickening to me. Now, that brings up one of my favorite topics, and that is the creature inhabiting the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, George Gascone. Truly, one of the most evil creatures in law enforcement history. He is what I call a Trojan horse district attorney, elected with the millions supplied to him 
by the, by the anti-American leftist forces and funding of George Soros. Put into office to destroy the criminal justice system in Los Angeles, and he's working very hard at it. George Gascon, when he took office, immediately began uh, doing everything he could to not prosecute violent criminals. And uh, unfortunately for him, he's run into some serious roadblocks, but still has been effective to a certain point. See, the district attorneys of Los Angeles, the, all the people that work under him have a very strong union, the assistant DA's union, and they've been fighting him every step of the way. Now, in many district attorneys' office, George Gascon could just fire everybody and replace it with his own people, but he's had to do it in, in, in little increments, so he doesn't have the, the, the power that he really wants, which is to control all the assistant district attorneys. Well, there's absolute, absolute, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Mutiny is the word I'm looking for in that, in his office, because he has taken away the abilities to sentence hardened criminals, violent criminals to, to sentences that will keep them off the street. So what are the results of that? One of the most despicable crimes that we have seen in a long time. <clears throat> Gascon's district attorney office gave El Monte cop killing suspect probation on gun charge. The city of El Monte is mourning two police officers killed in the line of duty. And now some are saying their alleged killer should have been behind bars. And it wasn't, and, and wasn't because of the policies of Los Angeles district attorney George Gascon. The suspect is accused of killing El Monte police officers, Corporal Michael Paredes and Officer Joseph Santana. Flores was killed when police returned fire. Court records indicate Flores had a previous criminal record dating back to 2010 and was recently charged as a felon in possession of a firearm. He was offered a plea deal by district attorney who gave him, by the way, a, a known violent gang member, uh, probation while he was on probation. He literally assassinated these two police officers. Gascon has blood on his hands. There is a recall effort to recall him. Uh, there was just the, the, the recall that took place in San Francisco where Chesa Bowden, Bodine, was thrown out of office. They now have enough signatures in Los Angeles to uh, bring it to the ballot. And I pray that George Gascon gets kicked out on his butt just like Chesa Bowden did. He's got blood on his hands for the killings of these two officers. Now, at the end of each one of my episodes, um, I honor the, the men and women of law enforcement who have lost their lives in the line of duty. It's called End of Watch. I have two names to read. Those two El Monte police officers. Excuse me, three names. First is Corporal Michael Paredes, El Monte Police Department, California. Corporal Michael Paredes and Police Officer Joseph Santana were shot and killed while responding to a domestic violence call. At 4.45 p.m., Corporal Paredes and Officer Santana responded to a report of a possible stabbing between a boyfriend and girlfriend. When they arrived at the hotel room, they were met with gunfire. Subject fled into the parking lot and responding officers exchanged gunfire with the suspect. Both officers were taken to LA County Medical Center where they succumbed to their wounds. 
subject was shot and killed. Corporal Poredes had served with the Almani Police Department for 22 years. He is survived by his wife, son, and daughter. Officer Santana had served with the Almani Police Department for one year, previously served with the San Bernardini County Sheriff's Office. He is survived by his wife, daughter, and twin sons. Police Officers Joseph Santana, Corporal Michael Paredes, El Monte Police Department, California, end of watch Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. The third officer is Deputy Sheriff Austin W. Melvin Richardson, Fremont County Sheriff's Office, Iowa. Deputy Sheriff Melvin Richardson succumbed to injuries sustained in a collision with a harvesting combine. 12.35 p.m., the combine was traveling southbound on the highway. Deputy Richardson was driving northbound when his vehicle collided with the combine. The combine was wider than the lane, and Deputy Richardson's left front tire collided with the machine. He served with the Fremont County Sheriff's Office for seven years. He has previously served with the Sydney Police Department. He survived by his wife and three children. Deputy Sheriff Austin W. Melvin Richardson, Fremont County Sheriff's Office, Iowa. End of watch, Tuesday, June 14, 2022. Each of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty, serving and protecting. May they rest in peace. So before we say goodbye, I urge you to visit thewoundedblue.org. That's thewoundedblue.org. It's the organization that was created to help injured and disabled officers across this nation, a nationwide charity. All of your contributions are tax deductible. They are touching lives, they are changing lives, and they are saving lives. They need your help. And you can be a hero to these heroes. Donate what you can. Five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, whatever it is that you can do. I guarantee you it will help. Go to thewoundedblue.org. If you have any questions, you can contact me, Randy, at thewoundedblue.org. If you want to sponsor this organization because of you are a business and you want to uh, sponsor this organization, contact me personally, Randy at thewoundedblue.org. So thank you so much for joining me. You can find me on Facebook at The Voice for American Law Enforcement. You can find me on Instagram at LT Randy Sutton. And thank you for joining us here again today at The Voice for American Law Enforcement, heard on iHeartRadio, AmericaOutloud.com, and everywhere podcasts are heard. Thanks again.